Part one, section seventy seven to eighty five of All Things Are Possible by Lev Shestov, translated by S. S. Kotelyansky, eighteen eighty five to nineteen fifty five. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Part one, section seventy seven. Count Tolstoy's German biographer regrets the constant misunderstanding and quarrels which took place between Tolstoy and Turgenev. He reminds us of Goethe and Schiller, and thinks that Russian literature would have gained a great deal if the two remarkable Russian writers had been more pacific, had remained on constantly friendly terms with one another, and bequeathed to posterity a couple of volumes of letters dealing with literary and philosophic subjects. It might have been very nice, but I refuse to imagine Tolstoy and Turgenev keeping up a long, peaceful correspondence, particularly on high subjects. Nearly every one of Turgenev's opinions drove Tolstoy to madness, or was capable of so driving him. Dostoevsky's dislike of Turgenev was even stronger than Tolstoy's. He wrote of him very spitefully and offensively, libeling him rather than drawing a caricature. Evidently Dostoevsky, like Tolstoy, detested the European in their confrere. But here he was mistaken in spite of his psychological acuteness. To Dostoevsky it was enough that Turgenev wore European clothes and tried to appear like a Westerner. He himself did the opposite. He tried to get rid of every trace of Europeanism from himself, apparently without great success, since he failed to make clear to himself wherein lay the strength of Europe and where her sting. Nevertheless, the late Mikhailovsky is not wrong in calling Dostoevsky a seeker of buried treasure. Surely, in the second half of his literary activity, Dostoevsky no longer sought for the real fruits of life. There awoke in him the Russian, the elemental man, with a thirst for the miraculous. Compared with what he wanted, the fruits of European civilization seemed to him trivial, flat, insipid. The age-long civilization of his neighbors told him that there never had been a miracle and never would be. But all his being not yet broken in by civilization, craved for the stupendous unknown. Therefore the apparently satisfied progressivist enraged him. Tolstoy once said of Turgenev, I hate his democratic backside. Dostoevsky might have repeated these words. And now, for the gratification of the German critic, please reconcile the Russian writers and make them talk serenely on high-flown matters. Dostoevsky was within a hair's breadth of a quarrel with Tolstoy, with whom, not long before death interrupted him, he began a long controversy concerning Anna Karenina. Even Tolstoy seemed to him too compliant, too accommodating. 78. We rarely make a display of that which is dear to us, near and dear and necessary. On the other hand, we readily exhibit that which is of no importance to us, there is nothing else to be done with it. A man takes his mistress to the theatre and sticks her in full view of everybody. He prefers to remain at home with the woman he loves or to go about with her quietly unnoticed. So with our virtues. Every time we notice in ourselves some quality we do not prize, we haste to make a show of it, thinking perhaps that someone would be glad of it. If it wins us approval, we are pleased, so there is some gain." To an actor, a writer, or an orator, his own antics, without which he can have no success with the public, are often disgusting. 
and yet his knack of making such antics he considers a talent, a divine gift, and he would rather die than that it should be lost to the public. Talent, on the whole, is accounted a divine gift, only because it is always on show, because it serves the public in some way or other. All our judgments are permeated through and through with utilitarianism, and were we to attempt to purify them from this adulteration, what would remain of modern philosophy? That is why youngish, inexperienced writers usually believe in harmonia praestabilitata, even though they have never heard of Leibniz. They persuade themselves that there is no breach between egoistic and idealistic aspirations. That, for instance, thirst for fame and desire to serve mankind are one and the same thing. Such a persuasion is usually very tenacious of life and lasts long in men of vigorous and courageous mind. It seems to me that Pushkin would not have lost it, even had he lived to a prolonged old age. It was also part of Turgenev's belief, if a man of his spiritual fibre could have any belief. Tolstoy now believed, and now disbelieved, according to the work he had in hand. When he had other people's ideas to destroy, he doubted the identity of egoistic and idealistic aspirations. When he had his own to defend, he believed in it which is a line of conduct worthy of attention and supremely worthy of imitation, for human truths are proper exclusively for ancillary purposes. 79. Man is such a conservative creature that any change, even a change for the better, scares him. He prefers the bad old way to the new good one. A man who has been all his life a confirmed materialist would not consent to believe that the soul was immortal, not if it were proved to him more geometrico, and not if he were a constitutional coward, fearing death like Shakespeare's Falstaff. Then we must take human conceit into account. Men do not like to admit themselves wrong. It is absurd, but it is so. Men, trivial, wretched creatures, proved by history and by every common event to be bunglers, yet must needs consider themselves infallible, omniscient. What for? Why not admit their ignorance flatly and frankly? True, it is easier said than done. But why should slavish intellect, in spite of our desire to be straightforward, deck us out with would-be truths of which we cannot divest ourselves even when we know their flimsiness? Socrates wanted to think that he knew nothing, but he could not bring it off. He most absorbedly believed in his own knowledge. Nothing could be truth except his teaching. He accepted the decree of the oracle and sincerely esteemed himself the wisest of men. And so it will be as long as philosophers feel it their duty to teach and to save their neighbors. If a man wants to help people, he is bound to become a liar. We should undertake doubt seriously, not in order to return at length to established beliefs, for that would be a vicious circle. Experience shows us that such a process, certainly in the development of ultimate questions, only leads from error to error. We should doubt, so that doubt becomes a continuous creative force, inspiring the very essence of our life. For established knowledge argues in us a condition of imperfect receptivity. The weak, flabby spirit cannot bear quick, ceaseless change. It must look round. It must have time to gather its wits and so it must undergo the same experience time after time. It needs the support and the security of habit. But the well-grown soul despises your crutches. 
He is tired of crawling on his own cabbage patch. He tears himself away from his own native soil and takes himself off into the far distances, braving the infinitude of space. Surely everybody knows we are not to live in the world forever. But cowardice prevents one straightforward admitting of it. We keep it close till there is an occasion to air it as a truism. Only when misfortune, disease, old age come upon us, then the dread fear of departure walks with us like our own skeleton. We cannot dismiss him. At length, involuntarily, we begin to examine our gruesome companion with curiosity. And then, strangely enough, we observe that he not only tortures us, but, keeping pace with us, he has begun to gnaw through all the threads that bind us to the old existence. At moments it seems as if, a few more threads gone, nothing, nothing will remain to hold us back. The eternal dream of crawling man will be fulfilled. We shall be released from the bonds. We shall betake ourselves in liberty to regions far from this damned veil of earth. 80. Moralists are abused because they offer us moral consolations. This is not quite fair. Moralists would joyfully substitute palpable blessings for their abstract gifts, if they could. When he was young, Tolstoy wanted to make men happy. When he was old and knew he could not make them happy, he began to preach renunciation, resignation, and so forth. And how angry he got when people wouldn't have his teaching. But if, instead of foisting his doctrines off on us as the solution of the ultimate problems, and as optimism, he had only spoken of the impossibility of finding satisfactory answers, and have offered himself as a pessimist, he would probably have obtained a much more willing hearing. Now he is annoying, because, finding himself unable to relieve his neighbors, he turns to them and insists that they shall consider themselves relieved by him, nay, even made happy by him to which many will not agree, for why should they voluntarily renounce their rights? Since, although God knows the right of quarreling with one's fate and cursing it is not a very grand right, still it is a right. 81. Ivanov, in Chekhov's drama of that name, compares himself to an overstrained laborer. The laborer dies so that all that remains to Ivanov is to die. But logic, as you know, recommends great caution in coming to conclusions by analogy. Behold Chekhov himself, who, as far as we can judge, had endured in his own soul all the tragedy, just as Ivanov had, did not die or think of dying, or even turn out a wasted man. He is doing something, he struggles, he seeks, his work seems important and considerable to us, just like other human beings. Ivanov shot himself because the drama must end, while Chekhov had not yet finished his own struggle. Our aesthetics demand that the drama must have a climax and a finale, though we have abandoned the Aristotelian unities. Given a little more time, however, dramatic writers will have got rid of this restriction also. They will frankly confess that they do not know how or with what event to end their dramas. Stories have already learnt to dispense with an ending. 82. More of the same. Ivanov says, now, where is my salvation? In what? If an intelligent, educated, healthy man, for no discoverable reason, sets up a Lazarus lament and starts to roll down an inclined plane, then he is rolling without resisting, and there is no salvation for him. 
One way out would be to accept the inclined plane and the gathering impetus as normal. Even further, one might find in the rolling descent a proof of one's spiritual superiority to other men. Of course, in such a case, one should go apart from the rest, not court young girls or fraternize with those who are living the ordinary life, but be alone. Love is nonsense, caress is maudlin, work is meaningless, and song and fiery speeches are banal, played out, continued Ivanov. To young Sasha these words are horrible, but Ivanov will be responsible for them. He is already responsible for them. That he is tottering is nothing. It is still full early for him to shoot himself. He will live whilst his creator Chekhov lives, and we shall listen to the shaky, vacillating philosophy. We are so sick of symmetry and harmony and finality, sick as we are of bourgeois self-complacency. 83. It will be seen from the above that already in Ivanov, one of his early works, Chekhov has assumed the role of advocatus diaboli. Wherever Ivanov appears, he brings ruin and destruction. It is true, Chekhov hesitates to take his side openly, and evidently does not know what to do with his hero, so that in the end he shakes him off, so to speak, he washes his hands of him in the accepted fashion. Ivanov shoots himself in the sight of everybody, has not even time to go discreetly into a corner. The only justification of Ivanov is that caricature of honesty, Dr. Lvov. Lvov is not a living figure, that is obvious, but this is why he is remarkable. It is remarkable that Chekhov should deem it necessary to resurrect the forgotten Starodum, that utterer of truisms in von Wiesin's comedy, and to resurrect him no longer that people may bow their heads before the incarnation of virtue, but so that they shall jeer at him. Look at Dr. Lvov. Is he not Starodum alive again? He is honesty personified. From force of old habit, honesty sticks his chest out and speaks in a loud voice with imperious tone, and yet not one of his old loyal subjects gives a brass farthing for him. They don't even trouble to jibe at him, but spit on him and shove him through the door as a disgusting and impudent toady. Poor honesty, what has he sunk to? Evidently virtues, like everything else, should not live too long on earth. Chekhov's uncle Vanya is waiting to throw himself on the neck of his friend and rival, the doctor throw himself on his neck and sob there like a little child. But he finds that the doctor himself has an unquenchable thirst for consolation and encouragement, whilst poor Sonya can bear her maiden sorrows no longer. They all go wandering round with big lost eyes, looking for someone to relieve them from part of their woes at least. And lo, everybody is in the same street as themselves. All are over-heavy laden. Not one can carry his own burden, let alone give a lift to another's. The last consolation is taken away. It is no use complaining. There is no sympathetic response. On all faces the same expression of hopelessness and despair. Each must bear his cross in silence. None may weep nor utter pitiful cries. It would be uncalled for and indecent. When Uncle Vanya, who has not realized at once the extremity of his situation, begins to cry out, My life's a waste, nobody wants to listen to him. Waste, waste, everybody knows it's a waste. Shut your mouth. Howling won't help you. Neither will pistol shots solve anything. Every one of us might start your cry, but we don't. Neither do we shout, You think I'll weep? No, I'll not weep. I have full cause of weeping. 
but this heart shall break into a hundred thousand flaws or ere i'll weep o fool i shall go mad gradually there settles down a dreadful eternal silence of the cemetery all go mad without words they realize what is happening within them and make up their minds for the last shift to hide their grief forever from men and to speak in commonplace trivial words which will be accepted as sensible serious and even lofty expressions no longer will any one cry life is a waste and intrude his feelings on his neighbours everybody knows that it is shameful for one's life to be a waste and that this shame should be hidden from every eye the last law on earth is loneliness resign yourself o my heart sleep the sleep of the brute eighty five groundless assumptions based on nothing because they seem to derive from common assumption of the reasonableness of human existence which assumption surely is the child of our desires and probably a bastard at that in his miserly night pushkin represented a miser as a romantic figure gogol with his plushkin creates on the contrary a repulsive figure of a miser gogol was nearer to reality a miser is ugly whatever view you take of him inward or outward yet gogol ought not to teach people to preserve in their age the ideals of their youth once old age is upon us it must not be improved upon much less apologized for it must be accepted and its essence brought to light plyushkin the vulgar dirty maniac is disgusting but who knows perhaps he is fulfilling the serious mission of his own being he is possessed by one desire to everything else to all happenings in the outer world he is indifferent it is the same to him whether he is hungry or full warm or cold clean or dirty practically no event can distract his attention from his single purpose he is disinterestedly mean if one may say so he has no need for his riches he lets them rot in a disgusting heap and does not dream like pushkin's knight of palaces and power or of sportive nymphs upon what end is he concentrated no one has the time to think it out at the sight of plyushkin every one recalls the damage the miser has done every one of course is right plyushkins who heap up fortunes to let them rot are very harmful the social judgment is nearly always to the point but not quite always it won't hurt morals and social considerations if at times they have to hold their tongue and at such times we might succeed in guessing the riddle of meanness sordidness old age end of part one section eighty five recording by expatriate in bangor maine